also gives me a uh, great pleasure today to introduce Gerhard Weiss from the London Cycling Campaign. Um, London Cycling Campaign, I think, been around since 1978, period. And um, as the name suggests, campaign for cycling within the London area. Um, I suppose one of the interesting features in Gerhard Mobile pick up on this in this particular role is as well as being a London-wide organisation, it also organises at the local and the borough level. So it's uh, a kind of example of both a, from a planning point of view, a regional um, and a localised organisation. I mean, you might have questions or I might talk about the relationship um, between the regional level and the local level and how it campaigns and what it does. Um, I think some of its claims on the website, obviously, are that it sort of focuses clearly on improving facilities for cyclists across London, but also seeking to promote cycling in terms of carbon dioxide reduction, the economy, you know, reducing the uh, loss of the economy through congestion, etc., um, etc. Et so it has on multiple uh, points on which it seeks to campaign to improve this particular form of transportation within London. So, with no further ado for me, hand over to Hart Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for having me at this uh, seminar. That's um, that's a, a great uh, opportunity. Um, my name is Gerhard Weiss. I'm the Cycling Development Officer for the London Cycling Campaign. Uh, the London Cycling Campaign is uh, a membership organisation. We've got uh, over eleven and a half thousand members uh, currently, and we also uh, have um, about fifty thousand supporters. Now, supporters are people who would subscribe to our e-newsletter uh, or take campaign actions for any uh, campaigns that we that we might run. Um, but probably most importantly, we have uh, three, uh, three uh, 33 uh, borough groups, local groups. Um, that's a, a voluntary group in each uh, London borough. And uh, they, they, they are very, very important. They um, do probably the bulk of, of the work that we're doing, even uh, albeit it's uh, voluntary. And, and personally, I, I owe them a lot because uh, probably a lot of the stuff that I know and that I talk about uh, comes from the knowledge from local group members and, and volunteers who are not just uh, volunteers but also um, there's a bunch of quite um, good transport planners and, and professionals in there uh, who give their voluntary time to support uh, the London Cycling Campaign. So uh, the, the title of the seminar, London Superhighways and the Go Dutch Campaign, is uh, I would sort of would like to break it down into uh, giving a bit of a background of cycling development in London. Um, cycling development, that's sort of, I, I call it cycling development just because of my job title, which, um, uh, which involves supporting the local group that I just, groups that I just talked about, but also um, to look after projects that go across borough boundaries. So these are projects that um, uh, that a, a single local group wouldn't be able to deal with, uh, but uh, it affects a number of local groups or a number of um, geographical areas in, in London. So a bit of background on that, uh, which I think is important to understand how the Cycle Superhighways came about. Um, then just briefly what the Cycle Superhighways are and, and, and what, they, uh, what they're all about. 
what's going to happen to them. And uh, then um, uh, a summary of uh, the campaign we ran last year called Love London Go Dutch, which uh, affects the cycle superhighways and our relationship with uh, Transport for London, Transport for London being in charge of implementing the cycle superhighways. So there is a, there's a direct um, relationship that's important. Um, and then the big question, and you'll see later in the presentation how how this sort of falls into place. The question is how could cycle superhighways go Dutch? Cycle superhighways have of course be existed and been developed before our campaign that we ran, ran last year. Uh, now we, we ran a campaign and we, we have got a commitment from the mayor which you will see uh, later on. So the question is what's, what's going to be different now? I mean if it's uh, business as usual then we have to ask ourselves why you know how, how was the campaign successful? How, how would we judge whether the campaign uh, was successful? And uh, I would also don't, uh, at the end uh, just briefly point towards um, uh, looking at cycling in London and cycling development in London beyond the cycle superhighways. The cycle superhighways are quite visible and they certainly uh, are very important in terms of funding. They cost a lot of money. Um, and in terms of uh, projects that London as a whole, rather than the individual boroughs, but London as a whole and Transport for London is running, this, the cycle superhighways are a major uh, part, but it's not everything. There is also uh, the cycle hire scheme, which uh, so far um, only covers central London and sort of goes into, into sort of zone two uh, a little bit. Uh, and then there is uh, another aspect uh, that receives funding London-wide, which are the biking boroughs, which are at the moment, which I won't go into, but um, they haven't been developed very much to date. They haven't received a lot of funding. So cycle superhighways is the big thing, and it's, it's what happens on the streets, what you can actually see on the streets in terms of infrastructure, and it's what uh, receives a lot of funding. So um, cycling development in London... Uh, this is not just infrastructure. Uh, I just said the cycle superhighways are mainly about infrastructure, but when we're looking at encouraging more people to cycle more often, uh, we also have cycle training, uh, we have promotional events, and then we have infrastructure, that's stu the stuff that we actually see on the streets. So for the purpose of this afternoon, we'll ignore the first two and we look at what happens on the streets and, for that matter, what happens on the public highway um, where the cycle superhighways actually <coughs> takes place. So, just to give you a bit of a background, um, we, we have 33, um, uh, 33 local authorities in London and each local authority is a local highway authority and they are in charge of their streets, which is the majority of London streets. So that is just uh, that is just the boroughs plus uh, the city of London in the middle, and they are uh, they can make decisions on what happens on their streets, whether they are particularly cycle friendly or they're not <coughs> cycle friendly. Um, across that, we have Transport for London Road Network, the TLRN. This is the road network that TFL is responsible for and has direct control over. So there is a certain part of the whole of London where TfL can actually and does make uh, decisions as to how the roads are designed, how, they, how they're designed for cycling and so on. 
Um, and then you also get, uh, when it comes to cycling, not just the road network, but you also get parks and waterways and uh, other City of London Corporation and other highway authorities who also own the land where you might have a cycle path or a cycle track uh, and they can also make decisions as to how is that designed, how does it link with other things, uh, or whether cycling is permitted at all uh, on, on, their, on their land. So as you can see, London is very complex and has a, a complex structure of uh, uh, streets, roads, networks and, and paths. Um, so it, it was probably then uh, quite ambitious in uh, the 1990s when uh, London embarked on developing what was called the London Cycling Network. And that looks pretty good. I mean, it's, it, the resolution isn't so great probably, but you can see that the blue lines make up a, a reasonably dense uh, cycling network. So um, this is quite good stuff. I mean, this is the sort of thing you would see on a, on a cycle map of Amsterdam. You know, it would be that kind of density of, of uh, networks. So that was in, in, in the late 90s. And probably a little bit overwhelmed with the sheer amount and the length of network that needed to be developed. Um, it was then decided to uh, come up with the London Cycling Network Plus, as it was called. And you can see that that's fewer routes, but uh, the idea was you, you would have a much more robust process as to how the routes would be implemented, uh, and the idea was to get something done much more, much, much quicker. So less piecemeal and you get a, a network um, off the ground um, uh, quicker within a few years. Um, and over that, that's probably the difference you probably couldn't quite make out, would have been the cycle superhighways because so far uh, with the LCN and the LCN Plus, uh, both those networks kind of avoided uh, the TLRN routes, the roads that TfL was responsible for. Um, those roads, we should remember, for in the 80s and 90s, um, they were almost deliberately designed uh, not to be for cycling, because they were designed as, they were the big roads, the big scary roads, where cyclists shouldn't really be, because it's way too dangerous, and there's all the trucks and all the buses and all the, uh, and all the major traffic. Um, <coughs> so, so to now uh, look at the cycle network, which often goes through uh, back streets, which is nice, but not always where you want to go. It's not always direct, uh, and the uh, in the end of the day, your shops and your um, uh, cash points and your schools and so on may well be on one of the TLRN roads, <coughs> and you still have to go there by bicycle. So, so that's the cycle superhighway. So. This all together looks quite good. Uh, you, get a, you get a decent uh, cycle network here. So I'll just give you, just focusing on, on the cycle superhighways. They were built to be uh, 12 commuter routes. They were specifically designed as, or they should be specifically designed as uh, commuter routes. They go from the outskirts into central London and out. Um, and the sort of radio routes, they're arranged in a, in a clockwork, uh, clock face um, fashion, as you can see, starting with one here, two, three, and so on, up to 12. Um, and, and they are mostly on the Transport for London road network. So 
There are two reasons for that. One is, yes, the Trans-Pathologian Road Network, the radial routes into the city, they are direct, uh, they are, but they also are under the control of um, Transport for London. So whereas previously, when you would have a LCN cycle route, it might go through four or five boroughs, um, then you'd have to negotiate with each borough as to where the route goes and what kind of facility should be there and so on. And you will f probably find, if you follow some of those routes, that uh, they can be a little bit patchy. They're sometimes non-existent uh, and sometimes quite well developed and sometimes they just have completely different um, facilities depending on uh, which borough they go to and uh, how much attention that borough has spent on developing them. So Transport for London probably did a good thing in having it on their own streets uh, so they have control and they can actually put down something consistent. Um, that was the idea. Um, and what do they look like? Uh, how, many, how many people ride a bike in London in here? Uh, just quickly scan that. So you, you're broadly familiar with super highways. You must have seen at least one of them, I guess, depending on, on, <coughs> on where you come from. Um, Basically, uh, along the links between junctions, they look a bit like this. They're either cycle tracks. This is a bit of an extreme example uh, in, on, on Southwark Bridge. Uh, there could be mandatory cycle lanes. They could be uh, made up of advisory cycle lanes or something what we would call ghost lanes. Um, for, for those who don't know, a mandatory cycle lane is bounded by a solid line. Uh, so motor vehicles are not allowed to encroach into uh, that cycle lane. Advisory cycle lanes have a, a, a dashed line and motor vehicles can encroach if it's unavoided, unavoidable. And along the superhighways, you will probably find that sometimes parking restrictions are not 24 seven, but only at peak times. So uh, off peak, you probably find um, uh, motor vehicles parked uh, in them. And ghost lanes, are is a term, I don't know where the term came from, uh, Transport for London uh, does not like uh, us using them, but um, we are so strongly against it, I think I'm, I'm quite happily use it here actually, uh, because um, they're, they're just blue paint basically, so they have no legal status whatsoever, um, they're just blue paint and in, in my view they can, they can be worse than nothing really, uh, they're meant to be there apparently for wayfinding purposes, but um, uh, but they do encourage people to be too close to the curb. They give the impression to drivers to uh, that it's okay to overtake fairly closely. Um, so for us, they are quite unacceptable on a, on a cycle superhighway. Uh, in fact, even the advisory cycle lanes uh, should only be very rarely used in our view. Um, but having said that, uh, cycle superhighways are not just the stuff that we see on the ground. Um, they also include soft measures. So the funding that goes into uh, a superhighway route also includes cycle training, cycle parking, uh, workplace initiatives, this is sort of a workplace parking facility, or just cycle parking on the street, uh, or sort of a consistent uh, wayfinding information. I mean, this is, this is something uh, you might have seen, those sort of legible, legible London signs for walking. Uh, this is a similar um, thing for the, for the cycle superhighways and that's, uh, that's really quite welcome, the idea that you now have a, so almost a tube-style map and you get an idea um, how quickly you can get 
to certain places. And for some people who try it the first time, that it might be quite surprising that you know it only takes 20 minutes to get out onto Docklands, for example. Um, so, what do we think about the Sykes Superhighways? The London Cycling Campaign has been uh, quite supportive of them. Uh, we certainly uh, welcomed the concept of the radial commuter routes or of the commuter routes as such. Uh, there was, uh, as I mentioned before, not everybody was particularly happy with uh, cycle routes previously that went sort of around the houses uh, where you could get lost quite easily if just one or two signs were missing. Um, and so to have direct routes on main roads uh, was, was quite welcome. Also the fact that there are no major trunk roads and that there was an acknowledgement uh, that cycling is, is welcome on those roads. That is um, actually, if you think about it, quite groundbreaking from moving from a time where it was completely forgotten about, not even forgotten about, but actually deliberately designed out to a period where we now think very hard of how can we accommodate cycling on those big main roads. But we also um, voiced some severe criticism, especially on the way it was designed, but um, sort of on the design detail. Um, but most importantly, uh, we didn't really have um, a recipe for junctions, and some of the main junctions were just neglected. Um, but the boat junction is one of the examples. Elephant and Castle is another. In Elephant and Castle, the Cypher Superhighway doesn't actually go through the junction, but there's a bypass. Um, so when it, it, it almost felt a bit like when it became difficult, we sort of <laughs> forgot about it and, and <coughs> didn't, have, didn't have a solution for that. Um, also, with the three big uh, cycling projects that have been um, put forward in London, the, uh, the cycling hire and the cycle superhighways and the biking boroughs. Um, the cycle superhighways don't really go into, into all the boroughs. So if you look at the catchment area, even of all 12 routes, and they will only be completed um, after 2015 probably, um, the catchment area is actually quite small, so the amount of Londoners who would potentially benefit from a, from a cycle superhighway <coughs> isn't that great. Uh, so we understand that Transport for London aims for the near market, for the commuters, and maybe that is a good way of raising the cycle levels to, to, to a critical mass. Um, but it, it does swallow up a lot of funding, and certain boroughs are completely excluded from the cycle superhighway network, and and some of them, the further out you go, uh, the less significant the catchment area of, um, of a cycle superhighway becomes. Um, and then lastly, the quality of impl implementation. I have alluded to that before. Um, the, the quality of the cycle lanes, the width of the cycle lanes, uh, the use of ghost lanes, and, and um, uh, the, the narrowness of the cycle lanes as well. Uh, we, should, we shouldn't forget that um, <coughs> cycle superhighways are probably comparatively good in terms of the, the technical standards that, that are being used, but it is only they are only done to the standards that that have already existed before. So they haven't done anything particularly new or radical. They only applied the standards uh, that were already there. It was just that previously um, the standards weren't adhered to. So we were critical of them. Uh, but lastly. I uh, would also 
asked the question um, by the superhighways. Um, we could think of them as a useful addition. So on the map, this looks great. We've got the London Cycling Network, we've got the London Cycling Network Plus, and now we also covered um, uh, the major trunk roads. This is great. I mean, this is a great um, uh, network of dense enough network to give people um, choice of routes. The problem is <coughs> that the cycling network, as it as it used to be, or as it was implemented, now no longer receives funding. So it completely now depends on the local authority whether they decide um, to pick up the bill for developing it further or maintaining it. So the London Cycling Network and London Cycling Network Plus, apart from the fact that it was never completed, it also now only gets maintained through the goodwill of the local authority and when they assign funding. Um, so we don't actually have uh, an LCN and an LCN Plus that is completed and has a, um, a stream of funding to keep it maintained. So really what we end up with is uh, a rather thin uh, cycling network and in fact not a network at all. The, uh, one of the criticisms that we also have for the superhighways is that it does not integrate into a network so much so that they go to the boundaries of uh, the city and the West End but not into and through it. So uh, we have proposed uh, something called a cycle grid uh, some time ago but that hasn't, hasn't, been, um, hasn't come to fruition yet. Uh, but, but so far, they're sort of just individual um, routes. So, so much for the cycle superhighways and, um, and sort of the LCC position on that. Um, now, in 2012, we had uh, elections to the London mayor. And um, traditionally, the, the London cycling campaign would come up with a manifesto with a list of bullet points that would say uh, we would like uh, 20 mph zones and uh, filtered permeability and cycle parking here and uh, cycle tracks there and so on. We would have a manifesto uh, that we would put to the political parties and the political parties would say, oh, everybody's in support of cycling and uh, they would give an indication as to what they can and can't do. Um, in 2012, uh, for the first time, we, we went much more public and much broader in terms of seeking public support, um, but also um, much stronger on the political front, and that was the, the Love London Go Dutch campaign. And that campaign, which you will see in a moment, directly affects what, or hopefully affects, what's uh, going to happen to the superhighways. So in 2010, there, um, we decided to run a campaign, as I've just described, a public-facing campaign with, with a broad appeal. And we developed a choice of campaign themes. We wanted to have one big campaign ask, rather than a manifesto that nobody reads through beyond point three or four. We wanted to have one big campaign ask, and we developed campaign themes that the membership uh, should choose from. So the membership should decide what to campaign on. So in 2011 uh, we, put it, we put the campaign themes to a vote uh, to the membership. So again for the first time um, we had the FCC <coughs> membership decide what single issue we should campaign for 
and the membership will overwhelmingly voted for Wostenko would go Dutch. Um, so we embarked on developing the uh, Go Dutch campaign. Uh, we decided to call it Love London Go Dutch. And we uh, did some work before we launched the campaign. We had to do some work to, dis to define what the campaign is about. And so we, dis we, we um, came up with, a, with background documents um, that should explain what we mean by Go Dutch. And we developed what we call the 10 Go Dutch principles. Um, now, I won't go into much detail what the principles are about. I left the URL here if you want, if you want to read them up. Um, it's, it is... Um, I, mean, I, can, I can read them out for you. It's safety first, best practice, adaptability, easy passage, calm junctions, harmony with pedestrians and harmony with public transport, quality of life, commitment and engagement. So they don't, at this stage, give a detailed sort of design manual of to how we should design it, but they're more about how the experience of cycling in London uh, should be. Uh, but like I said, there's more detail that, <coughs> that, you, that you can read up to. But that was the, 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 the background document. So we, um, we started the campaign in 2012, and um, uh, we ran a petition, so we wanted as many people as possible to sign up to our campaign, and um, uh, before, just before the elections, uh, we organised uh, a big ride, and so we managed to to gather 42,000 signatures to our petition. That's that's more than the Times uh, campaign, I believe, and 10,000 people came out in this cold and on a cold and wet uh, April day, which was uh, which was rather amazing because we thought it, it would be a bit of a washout. But there we go, 10,000 people supported the campaign by coming to central London to, um, to take part in a big ride. And all major mayoral candidates uh, have signed up to the campaign and have promised to make London more livable for everyone by making our streets as safe and inviting for cycling as they are in Holland. That was the big campaign ask. That was the... That was, that's what... Uh, uh, people signed a petition for, and that's what the, the mayoral candidates uh, signed up to. And that's a big, that's a big commitment. Uh, safety is, 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 a big, um, is a big question, but it's probably manageable. Making the streets comfortable for cycling is probably still not too much to ask, but inviting yeah, is, is a very important point because it implies that not only making, are we making our streets safe and you know, people who cycle can get around easily and safely, we also want to get more people cycling. So that means we design our streets in a way that uh, we can get a broader audience um, onto bikes. We know uh, that there are a lot of people who would like to cycle more and they are put off by several factors, including the way the, our streets are designed, which is always a major <coughs> problem. Um, uh, but also parking, which would, which would also feed into that. And as part of this pledge, uh, the mayor promised uh, three uh, things. Three major flagship developments 
So here we're talking about you know big junctions, Vauxhall gyratory or um, or Greenwich gyratory or one, some of those big locations that would be turned into flagship developments. Now this would be only three locations, but they could serve uh, as a template for others to be copied. Um, he also promised to design the streets that the mayor or Transport for London has control over um, according to those Go Dutch principles that we have laid out. And, relevant for today, he also um, promised to complete the Cycle Superhighway uh, program according to Go Dutch standards. And so this is basically the complete set of streets that Transport for London is responsible should now see a really different approach from Transport for London as to how, um, how the streets are being designed for cycling. And so I'd like to just give an idea now of how we think that the cycle superhighways could go Dutch. What's going to be different? We've just seen, we've got lanes here, we've got tracks there, we, we know how they're designed now. So what would make, what would make a difference? Uh, how would they go Dutch and how would it not just be business as usual? <coughs> Now for, so I would, I would say from the outset, the important thing from my point of view here is to use the cyclist as a design parameter. Now this is a phrase that I've, I've stolen from the, from the Crow, from the Crow manual, the Dutch um, cycling design manual, but I think it's a very important one because it does not focus on how wide is the cycle lane. Is it 1.5 meters, is it 1.8 meters, or is it 1.3 meters? Um, it, uh, it focuses on the person who's <coughs> riding a bike itself, with all their flaws and, and problems and inabilities. They might carry stuff, they might wobble, they might not be able to um, read certain traffic signs because they haven't got a driving license, or um, they, they may struggle to do a right turn across a, a three-lane uh, major road and so on. Um, so we need to look at the person who is actually riding. Um, and people who are riding a bicycle, for them, for the, for the journey to be safe and feel safe and for the streets to be inviting and for the journey to be comfortable, we need two things. We need space and time. So especially on the roads that, um, that Transport for London is looking at, where traffic, motor traffic volume uh, tends to be very high, speed tends to be very high, and even if, if, speed is if, if the speed limit is enforced and, uh, um, and, and people don't go 50 or 40, uh, 40 or 50 miles an hour, uh, the speed is still faster motor traffic speed is still faster or potentially faster um, than, than the speed cyclists go. So therefore you need space. You need space for motor vehicles to either for motor vehicles to comfortably overtake you or um, for or for cyclists to overtake you in traffic. So we have got a big difference in, in peak flows and off peak flows on, on London's roads. So you do need to have that extra bit of space that makes a cycle journey um, convenient and, and possible. 
uh, we need space to ride side by side. Um, this is something that's um, sort of been forgotten about in, in, in London and in, in the UK as a whole. Um, we kind of don't seem to think about uh, that, you know, if, if you drive in a car, it's, it's a given that you can sit next to each other and have a chat, and if you're on the tube or on the bus or on the train, it's, uh, we all take it for granted that, uh, that you can sit next to each other. When we ride a bicycle, suddenly that no longer seems to apply, um, and we don't see why not. Uh, it should be possible to have, uh, to, to ride socially, uh, but also to be able to pass each other. I mean, cyclists um, go at different speeds. Some people go slower, some people go faster. Um, there's no uh, requirement to always having to go single file. Um, and both space and time uh, to go at your own pace. This is probably, actually, probably the, from people who already cycle, uh, the main sort of experience of cycling on main roads is that we feel we don't actually, can't, we can't actually go at our own pace. We always feel rushed by the taxi behind us or by the traffic lights or, or by some other factors. Uh, I, I don't know about you, I, I go over Tower Bridge most, most days and, uh, and my, my cycle journey otherwise is actually quite comfortable. And you go over Tower Bridge and um, all the cycle training in the world uh, doesn't take it away. You can't go at your own pace. You either you either pushed into the gutter, or you kind of at least feel you have to keep up with traffic, or you have an argument all the time with people who sort of try and overtake you but really can't, and so on. Um, so it's an important factor to make it uh, convenient. Um, and time, time to negotiate junctures. So um, junctures should not only be simple. But actually, uh, again, we, we have to assume that not everybody who <coughs> rides a bike has a driving license, or, or if they have a driving license, they might not drive for most of their life. Um, and they should also be able to look at the junction, to arrive at the junction, and, and quite obviously see how to negotiate that safely without getting into trouble. And um, taking account of London's complex network um, means that that our major trunk roads aren't always just trunk roads. Um, they're also high streets, and they're also streets where people live at, and they're streets where we have schools, uh, as well as occasionally dual carriageways. So they change, and so we 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 must take account of that. I mean. Um, if, uh, if anybody's familiar with the South Circular Road um, that, that isn't a road at all I mean this is just a, a, a conglomerate of, uh, of, sort of links between town centres and so some of those links are fairly wide and some of those links are quite narrow and some of them are high streets and some of them go across um, across sort of open spaces so if space is tight and if you have a high frontage activity like on a high street, um, then you just have to slow everybody down and have to make the lack of space up with giving more time by having uh, slower motor traffic, for example. <coughs> um, oh, sorry. Um, so how does that manifest itself in, in actual infrastructure? And 
it means designated space for cycling, mostly designated space for cycling. I've just given a high street example, and I'm pretty sure there are probably quite a lot of high streets where you may not want a cycle track, or you may not want, uh, maybe not even a cycle lane, it depends. Um, you can have a high street where there's lots going on, where traffic, motor traffic levels are relatively low and going slowly, and actually you want to be able to stop frequently, and pedestrians want to cross the road at all sorts of positions and so on. <coughs> that is quite a different environment from some of the faster and dual carriageway roads you find in outer London. But in any case, uh, the, the, the point is that you want to have space, and you want to have space that's available for cycling. Um, junctions need to be... Junctions are very important in the mix, have been a little bit forgotten so far until the, the, the better junctions review, which I'll come to later. Um, we need junctions to be calm, and they need to be easy to understand by people. Uh, now, a good example, or a bad example for that matter, is, is Blackfriars Bridge, for example, the northern end of, of Blackfriars Bridge. Um, it's got all the cycle facilities, and the cycle facilities are, uh, are designed, they've, they've got the right standards, the, the measurements are correct, you know, it's the correct kind of cycle lane. But the way the junction looks, you cannot see you to the other side. You don't know what to do in order to turn right. Um, so it is very difficult unless you're in, a, you're in a motor car. So the junctions from the outset need to be designed so that, so that they can be read easily and understood. People understand how to use them. Um, slow traffic, generally. I've said before that on the TLRN road network, chances are that motor traffic goes faster than bicycle traffic. Um, but overall, the differential speed should be very low. Um, so that's what we want, but uh, what we often hear is how London is uh, different. And I put this here against uh, London is the same. <laughs> London is a very complex place, and it is true that London is different. I mean, London is the biggest conurbation in Europe, it's got a massively dense bus network, certainly probably the, the densest bus network in, in Europe, if not, if not the world, possibly. Um, it's got a large number of highway authorities. That's something I mentioned before with the maps. So it's not very easy to just run a Cypher Superhighway. Cypher Superhighway 3 is, is partly on, on a local authority's land. Now, that, that would have been a real big problem to get that implemented to a certain standard and now it is still a problem to get it maintained because it's up to the local authority to maintain it. So that is a problem. There's also a legacy uh, just of car culture. That's just something that, that there is a cultural element um, where cycling is not seen as normal and cars are seen as, as the thing to aspire to. And perhaps as a result of that um, we have probably a lost, a lost generation in inverted commas in, uh, in this country and so if you lose a generation not only have you got 20 or 30 years of people who are not interested in cycling they also have children who grow up in a household where there isn't a bicycle or people don't cycle so that, that is a big problem and we have cycle use is just very very low um, so, yes, um, we should learn from the Netherlands and the continent and so on, 
Um, but this is a problem that the Dutch never had. The Dutch never started from zero. Uh, this is a very, it's a very difficult thing to do, and and so this is a specific London problem. And compared to the Netherlands, we've got a few hills, I guess. Um, but um, London isn't, of course, a city at all. London is a number of uh, town centres, local town centres. It's actually very densely meshed uh, town centres. So each town centre has a shopping parade and each town centre has their own trip attractors and people live around their town centre, all within a mile or two away. So these are all perfectly cyclable trips and there's huge potential and maybe this is <coughs> one of the problems that so much money is swallowed up by cycle superhighways and relatively little uh, for developing those town centres uh, in the boroughs, especially in outer London. Uh, but we've got a good climate. I mean, I, I come from Vienna, there, were, there are a good two, three months uh, in Vienna where I really wouldn't want to cycle, not just because it's snowy, but because you've got the mash and the ice and it's freezing and so on. Um, it's great. <coughs> it's a wet city as well. We can afford to invest in transport infrastructure. We can afford to invest in crossrail and we can afford to invest in the tube and in the buses. We should be able to afford to invest in uh, the most efficient mode of transport there is as well. And there is space. Emphasis on is. No, there isn't space everywhere. We can always pick an example where space is tight. At the same time, we can also pick an example where it isn't. Uh, especially for in, in, uh, along the big roads, the further you go to outer London, uh, there is plenty of space available to make space for cycling. Um, well, yes, we have a lost generation, but we also have a new generation. We have a new generation who um, maybe is not so wedded to the car, Perhaps the smartphone came to our rescue, so the status symbol these days is a smartphone or an iPad rather than the car. So the mode of transport no longer matters so much, so people use what is actually practical uh, rather, than <coughs> rather than just a status symbol. Um, and cycling is growing. So yes, we have started from zero, but there are a few very good success stories and maybe the, the focus on commuting will pay off, we don't know, maybe we have reached critical mass so that people now uh, see there are more cyclists on the road. And it's not too hilly either. Uh, there's lots of cycling in Switzerland, which is rather more hilly than, uh, than London. Um, and so I would just uh, point out that yes, there are problems, but they're certainly not excuses, they're no longer excuses uh, for doing nothing. And Last but not least, I would, as I said before, cycle superhighways don't really reach all the boroughs and we shouldn't forget that the roads that Transport for London controls make up only 5% <coughs> of all the streets in London. So actually most of the cycling uh, will happen on streets that are not controlled by Transport for London. So, Beyond cycle superhighways, we should focus on junctions. As I said, junctions are very important. This is where most collisions happen. This is where most of the confusion occurs. And Transport for London has actually embarked on what's called the Better Junctions Program, uh, where we are involved in. Uh, involved in. Uh, the big question is, is it actually designed to deliver the Love London Go Dutch promises? Like I said, the Transport for London network only makes up 5%, so um, that means 
the local authorities, the borrowers, also need to take responsibility, not to just make sure their streets are safe, but also that they are inviting for cycling so that they all benefit uh, from the benefits of cycling. So, Love London Go Dutch um, needs to go local, is what I would suggest, uh, as the next step after the superhighways. Uh, and as such, I would say we should maybe think less of particular specific routes which only ever benefit people who happen to make their journey along that route <coughs> but to have an area-based approach look at those town centers uh, those many town centers that London has made up and have an approach um, that I would call design for cycling because we talked about cycle superhighways now of course not all these streets not the London Cycling Network, not the London Cycling Network Plus, not the local areas. They won't all be like super highways because they're not all fast commuter roads. Um, then most of these streets will not have cycling facilities on them, uh, but they can still be designed with cycling in mind. <coughs> the width of the carriageway, the, where the parking is located, and so on, is, is all very important to make uh, cycling more, uh, more safe and more convenient. And last but not least, uh, something the Dutch do very well and something we, we should certainly learn um, is to have a very comprehensive uh, approach. It's not just about cycle lanes and cycle tracks and it's not even just about streets. Uh, it is the whole package. It starts at home. Uh, I run uh, information stores uh, every now and then locally. About half the people who come to me who say, oh, I don't really cycle very often, or not at all, say they haven't got anywhere to store the bike. They would happily cycle. They've got, not only have they not got anywhere to store the bike, some of them are banned from storing their bike in their housing association house. Uh, so there's a starting point. You've, you have people who are actually ready to go and they can't store the bike. Now, no amount of cycle superhighway will make them cycle. They need cycle parking. So we are looking at a much more comprehensive approach that includes parking and that includes training and that includes um, street infrastructure as well. Um, so that's it from me. I hope you've got uh, some questions or comments or anything else that I hope you're talking to. Yes, thank okay. you. I'm, I can start with a question then I'll open it up to the floor. So you, you were perhaps very relaxed about saying it's a wealthy city and that there is generally space. But in a sense also what you were talking I think some of what you were talking about was about competing claims for public space, public transport, <coughs> competing with pedestrians, public transport and obviously the car driver as well. And I wonder, I don't know if you can talk to this very much, but just the sense of whether Transport for London is helpful in terms of that competition for space and resources, or whether the sort of internal divisions of Transport for London uh, are problematic from the London cycling campaign point of view. So I was thinking in particular, clearly were, we to, were London cycling campaigns be very successful in generating huge increases <coughs> in uh, cycle usage, I can see that this would be for Transport for London, this could be a loss of bus passenger transport and fare payers. So I'm just wondering whether Transport for London tends to itself divide off cycling or see cycling as um, you know, desirable within limits, or whether you feel there is a sort of coordinated approach there. Well, I think um, <coughs> a good example of probably the, the Olympics. Um, 
where I think Transport for London has acknowledged that cycling contributed to the resilience of, of the network. So, yes, cycle usage has increased a lot, but um, in terms of uh, underground and bus capacity, I mean, it hasn't touched the sides yet, I think. Um, and yet, I, I mean, I can't speak for Transport for London, but, but I do think that, um, that there is an acknowledgement in, in all departments that, that having more people cycling increases the resilience and, and actually frees up space on a tube, for example, Buses I'm not so sure of, but certainly the tube is, is, a, is more of a long distance, or can be a long distance uh, means of transport. So if, if space is freed up there, I'm not sure if Transport for London sees it as a loss of revenue rather than uh, a gain of, of reliability, I think, uh, as it is at the moment. I mean, if we, if we get to the space, to the to, to point where cycling becomes a, a serious competitor <coughs> for buses, then I think we have to rethink the next stage of cycle campaigning probably because uh, um, yeah we're, we're quite far off uh, that point I think at the moment bit difficult that yes there are there are you know severe budget cuts um, but we're still looking at a rather small proportion of money being spent on cycling and actually reallocating road space um, is is not always that expensive really I mean it, it, it can be a matter of painting a lane in many cases um, so I would suggest starting with the best opportunities um, I mean, if you, if, you look at the, if you look at the whole road network, or even at all 12 like superhighways, yes, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of road space, that's a lot of, that's a lot of money. But, um, but I would suggest small steps and start with the best opportunities. Uh, I think we've, we've had about 50 or 60 years of <coughs> allowing uh, motor traffic to fill up every, every nook and cranny of, of the city. I mean, so much so, we, 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 have, we have streets in the city which are barely wider than a transit van and they're still, they're still available to drive through. Uh, we've got residential roads that bypass gyratories. Uh, that in, in, in the case of my borough, and I know there are others as well, they are deliberately designed so that people can bypass it. For example, uh, it doesn't take much to, um, to stop that. I don't think that's a huge investment. Um, now, if, you, if you're thinking of shiny new cycle tracks along uh, big main roads, then, then I agree, that's, 
that will be more difficult uh, to fund. But, uh, but then compared to some of the other transport projects, I don't think it's, it's, it's that much necessarily. But yeah, opportunities. Pick, pick the, the good opportunities first, the ones where you, you generate the best outcome in terms of cycling. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd like to sort of pick up these first two questions, really, because um, it is London is a very, very big city, and you know, we know from other transport uh, figures that the length of commutes is bigger than any longer than any other city uh, in the world. I think you know, sort of 55 minutes each way or something, very long commutes uh, over often over a long a long distance. And so you can see that some journeys, and you've hinted at this, some journeys uh, into centres might make sense. But for many people, the long replacing the long commute with the cycle, I think, would probably be realistic only for the most dedicated of cyclists. And that's the first thing. So every time I see you know, London compared with Copenhagen, you know, I just remind myself that Copenhagen covers the same geographical area as Croydon, but with, South, with twice the population. Okay, so it's a very different proposition. However, coming back to the first point, I mean, the, it's not just that London's a big city, but it has historically inherited a very, very poor road network by comparison with, say, Paris or New York, certainly inside the city. And this has led to that, combined with the borough TFL split, a really odd policy of some roads, a few straight big roads, being very, very heavily used. And most other streets, not much used at all. And you can see this, this building. This side is mazed to the point of unusability. Hardly any look out, there'll be no traffic moving around these streets. But this side uh, is a kind of motorway. So, and that pattern is very, very, uh, is, you can see it all over the place, Cromwell Road, Euston Road, Tottenham, uh, Tottenham High Road, Park Lane, Croydon, A12, and so on. Now, these superhighways are often driven down these big roads. So, to go back to the competition for space point, you've got, you've already got, far more buses going down most of these streets than any other street in the world. And now we're trying to push cycle superhighways down the same roads, as well as, and you have to remember, there's not much private car traffic left. So the competition is with buses, taxis, and vans in most of the city. And it seems to me that if you add all that together, given that the boroughs quite rightly want to protect their streets from much through traffic, so they often make them difficult to use, you're left only with these big roads. And so indirectly, what your campaign is arguing for is either many fewer vehicles, that is certainly fewer buses and taxis, to make this a possible policy, or wider roads. And it seems to me that otherwise it's just putting so much pressure on the existing big roads and the existing junctions, and I completely disagree. If you want to have you know, people riding side by side and being able to cycle slowly and you know, I, I cycle, get through these junctions without being harmed, then you'd have to have very much more space. There's only two ways you can make more space. Bigger roads, 
or radically reducing traffic. And in most of these roads, the traffic isn't the private car, it's buses and it's taxis. And they are such powerful lobbies within TfL that cyclists will never win against them. Okay. I have a right to that, which is no, sorry. perhaps a third no, just, way. Could you just, I should have said earlier, yeah. could you just introduce I'm yourself? I'm sorry, I'm telling you, Travis, to be honest. Yeah, he's John. Just a thought, being in the LSE, about the third way. That's yes again. Is there any possibility of taking more space uh, as shared space with pedestrians? Not necessarily on Kingsway, which is a really good model, uh, but I can think of other roads really quite close to, you know, that in that London, quite close to the centre, where if you're thinking of the Dutch model, you might be looking very much more at shared pedestrian and cycle space. Or is that only a sort of half a well, it, I mean, sharing between pedestrian and cyclists is not, not exactly the Dutch model. I think that's what they would use it very rarely. Shared space, as in completely shared space, is to some extent. Uh, and uh, what is interesting, uh, I think uh, Hackney is, is now uh, proposing a new shared space uh, which looks better designed than, than Exhibition Road. Certainly won't have uh, car parking on it or the sort of delineation of the carriageway as it, as it is uh, in that exhibition road. So that may work as well, but of course I can't see that work on, on the Kingsway. Um, but it, <coughs> but it, was, it, it, it was interesting that you mentioned the two sides of, of the building. I mean, uh, that is, is actually not, not so unusual in the <laughs> Netherlands. You've got the big through roads. But actually, you probably won't find so much bicycle traffic on them if, if, if they are like that. Um, and then you it's get different to, I mean, sorry to interrupt you, Paris, say take Paris and New York, which are also vast cities. In those cities, you know, say in Manhattan, which is the equivalent to central London, all the streets and avenues are in use. They're all in use. You don't get anything like these sort of oases that the boroughs create, and they're brilliant, that, you know, Westminster and Camden. And in fact, they are a great unused opportunity because if those streets are used more, rather than trying to push superhighways down great big motorways, you'd imagine it would be kind of easier for everybody. Well, I mean, like I said, it's interesting that, that you mention it because, um, because I agree that's a great thing to have those oasis, except it's made impenetrable for the bicycle as well. <laughs> so, um, yes, there are easy ways around that. Camden Council, for example, <coughs> has made lots of streets, so, and Kensington and Chelsea started this, just to allow cyclists to go the wrong way along one-way streets. That's a zero cost, near zero cost policy. Yes, I, I, I'm totally, you know, I totally agree with that. And, and you know, the problem you have here in Westminster as well, actually, is um, is that these things have become impenetrable <coughs> uh, by bicycle. And, and actually, Hackney is, 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 is very good on that as well, in, in terms of the they phase out one-way streets altogether. They just have what they call mode filters, and you, know, you just can't drive through, but you can walk or cycle through. Um, so that that's great. But I can understand from the Transport for London view uh, that embarking on a project where you have long-distance commuter routes that go uh, through these kind of areas through different boroughs, uh, I have a feeling it may never. Well, it might have got off the ground, but 
that they got as many finished as they have would have been would have been quite an achievement. But you know, I, I find myself going. Um, I'm often down at Bishopsgate, and I look at Bishopsgate, and there is a, a string of buses and taxis, and I think, well. Mm. How do you reallocate road space here? <laughs> it's going to be quite difficult. Uh, so yes, that's true. But uh, there's always a big difference between inner London and outer London. So in inner London, cycling kind of competes with public transport, whereas in outer London, it does compete with uh, with the private motor vehicle. But by, by compete, I mean you'd want to you'd want people to switch from the car to the bicycle, whereas in central London, you'd probably want to switch them from public transport to the bicycle. Um, so there are opportunities. You know, you may not start with the King's Way, and you may not start with Bishopsgate, but you know, as soon as you go to Croydon and uh, and, and, and Sutton and Havering and you know, some of those town centres are actually almost designed with their ring roads and so on, designed like small Dutch towns. <laughs> so it's it's I, I do think it's it's possible. And like I said, I can understand why TfL wants the superhighways on. On their roads, on on their roads. Um, Andrew Reeson, uh, University of Westminster. Um, there's recently been a public consultation on uh, Route Five, the new Route Five, and mm. um, the proposed Route Two extension. Um, these involve quite a lot more segregated, um, more prioritised cycle facilities. To what extent are you pleased with the, the new routes or dissatisfied at missed opportunities? Mm. Well, um, <coughs> it's a long road, actually. I, I think I've, um, well, I think I know I've written the, the LCC um, response to the consultation, which is, uh, it's a few pages long. <laughs> it's quite detailed. So it's a mixed bag. Um, but I think it's a step forward in that I don't think they have used any ghost planes. Or, yes. well, there, there may have been the odd one. It, it, they still use them inside bus lanes, which is a bit of a, uh, a discussion point. Um, <coughs> so you know that's good. <laughs> that's good. So that means space has been created. We can discuss whether it's enough or not. And and uh, at the moment, they, there's still one element out for consultation, which is Camberwell, uh, which is a bit trickier because it is is a town centre, as, as I've described before. <coughs> Um, so I think it's a, it, it is a step up, whether it would have happened with or without, or whether it would have happened without the, the, the campaign, I don't know. Uh, but um, uh, it, is, it is a very good step. And, and in fact, what tends to happen with all the superhighways, which I find is a little bit problematic still, is that the best stuff happens in central London. And then the further out you go, if, if you travel on superhighway 7 further out, uh, Soon, the further out you go, the more you sort of you're a bit lost, and you just <laughs> suddenly you're on, on sort of a dual carriageway and a bit stranded, and it's not much better than than what you what was there before. And with CS5, it's similar. In, in Westminster, you actually get the most benefit, where basically they've taken out the general vehicle lane and made a cycle lane, which is good. I suppose Route Two will be the, the opposite to that because it's lost nearly all of it's segregated. Well, the bit between Bow and, and Stratford. Yeah, yeah, the outer bit. Yeah. This is going to be an interesting uh, trial. Yeah, yeah, I suppose when you get there, it's around about. Yes. I think, there, I think there's a very good case in uh, uh, between Bow and Stratford because not only is that, you know, 
two by three lanes and a very wide um, high street with uh, not very much frontage activity and you know it's kind of seems like the right place to do that sort of thing. It is also one of the few crossings of, of the Lee Valley. So whereas in many other instances in, in Canton or in, or in other places uh, you can you can stick on the main road or if you if you be too worried about the main road you can go around the back streets. Uh, when you cross the Lee Valley or when you go over a bridge you don't have the choice. Everybody has to use that crossing and so therefore it should be designed for most people to use as well. So it's going to be an interesting trial. Yeah. I've come in with another question, just uh, following up what Tony was asking. I mean, to what extent do you see the superhighway really as being a sort of scheme that's driven by implementation? So because the Mayor and Transport for London has the control of these roads, to some extent it seems to me from your presentation that, that the superhighways come to dominate this kind of provision for cyclists simply because Transport for London can deliver it on its roads. And I wonder if, to speculate, if all roads were managed by one authority, whether the choice would have been made to go for this superhighway approach. Also, because I'm thinking from your presentation in a way you were suggesting that you think it some, to some extent the way forward for cycling is to understand this village nature of London and that maybe it would be better to focus on cycling in this kind of um, network, sort of multi-central, polycentric way, rather than as a sort of a commuting, long-distance commuting. Well, I mean, we have been quite supportive of those commuting routes. I mean, it is a, it is a, there's a desire for that. You know, people, a lot of people do work in central London, they need to get there, and a lot of people want to cycle there. Uh, so it's not as, I don't think it's necessarily one or the other, but, <coughs> but I do think it's, the, the, the local town centre has been neglected in, in terms of cycling, um, or at least <laughs> it's um, at least in the boroughs where uh, where there isn't much appetite to grow cycling. So it was it was left to the boroughs. I mean, it used to be there used to be money available that was ring fenced for cycling, and and that was uh, that, that that was no longer available and so on the one hand you know it's good to have money that's ring fenced for cycling because then you don't spend it on anything else but there's also a temptation if you have a pot of money that's ring fenced for cycling you kind of think well this is the amount of spe I spent I can't spend more well you could but I suppose it'll be difficult for to, to argue for more <coughs> and then and then there is this usual rush every end of the year to spend the money on bits and pieces that may not be very effective so so in a sense, not having it ring-fenced has the potential to maybe invest more and, um, and, and do something greater and bigger and be more independent. But it also has the danger that if you have uh, a local authority where cycling isn't very high on the agenda, then just nothing happens. Um, and you, you probably find both things <laughs> across London. And so in that sense, I do think that, um, that the biking, what, what was termed the Biking Borough Programme, um, which has received some funding uh, would need strengthening much, much more. And actually, uh, I'd love to be able to convince the local authorities themselves, rather than waiting for Transport for London to make a decision. I'd love the local authorities themselves to realise the potential. I mean, we, we I, I live in in an outer London borough, which is sort of borderline. It's got a sort of urban geography, but wants to be suburban sort of place. And uh, <coughs> 
and, and we have that funny situation where there are lots of people who quite happily commute 7, 8, 10, 12 miles to their workplace and then they come home and then they go to the local swimming pool a mile and a half by car and to the local supermarket <laughs> a mile by car so they do that it's not that they can't cycle they don't want to cycle it's just the way the town centers are designed are perfectly fine for driving it's served on a plate um, so that's what I do <laughs> Um, safety, you touched on safety. Mm. I mean, um, I say as somebody who either travels by public transport or by bike, I'm always aware of when I go by public transport thinking, at least I'm probably not going to die on my way home. <laughs> now, I only, I'm not quite joking, that's not, that's not, it is, I'm conscious of being near to death on the bicycle on big roads in central London in a way that I also am, if I ever go in a car on a motorway, it just doesn't feel inherently safe. Whereas, so if you were to use the annualised death rate per billion kilometres, cyclists travelling in London, and transfer that to a number of people dying on the underground every year, there would be an outcry. It would be the equivalent of regular, serious incidents on the underground. Mm. And yet, the number, there is no, I mean, when a cyclist would kill to, I think, work for a national newspaper, that newspaper then took up the um, cause. But actually, the, 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 the safety of cycling is actually self-evidently not very good. So, at uh, risk of a really aggressive-sounding question, aren't you kind of encouraging people to do something which is actually relatively, compared with most of our safe and positive lives, rather dangerous? Oh, well, I, don't, I wouldn't go as far as that. <laughs> I think you, men you mentioned um, uh, the, the statistics per big, um, safety of uh, per billion passenger kilometres. Well, I mean, the underground is, in these terms, like civil aviation, very, I mean, equally and opposite. You're safer on the underground than you are in your own home. I mean, it's so safe, hmm. relatively, because they spent so much effort making yeah. it safe, often after accidents, actually. But, but the, measure, the measure used is is uh, always favors long distance modes and public transport because because you might make a lot of journeys by bicycle but it takes you a long time until you reach a billion kilometers so so yeah, what i'm saying mobilizing though i mean the number of people killed on the roads <coughs> riding bicycles last year is you will know what the number is i think i'm writing so the number killed in the underground in accidents was nil yes yeah no I, i'm not i'm not I'm not dismissing it, but I'm saying the measure you're taking, whether you can, if you measure it per trip, uh, the picture looks rather different. Uh, very good, though. Uh, no, well, no, not, not compared to the tube. I mean, it, <coughs> I mean you, you, you say something quite important. I think I made that point in a, in a, a newspaper article, actually, <coughs> uh, that choosing to ride a bicycle has to come as easy as going on public transport for it to become a mass mode of transport um, if, if, if you have you know if, if you if you set out your journey with with that in mind with saying oh you know am I gonna risk it on the bike or am I gonna just fall asleep on the tube um, then then something's not quite right and and of course it's not surprising that that a large proportion of the population uh, will not do it even if even if the figures you know even if the risk technically is quite low. 
and and so I mean I, I would I would say that the the measure of uh, fatalities per billion passenger kilometers is skews the, the results in favor of long distance travel. You're always well off on the aeroplane because you're doing a few thousand kilometers uh, in one journey. Um, whereas, of course, um, on my bicycle, it'll, it'll take me a year to do that same amount of um, uh, same amount of mileage. Um, and, and, and so if you, if you look at those statistics, cycling isn't particularly unsafe, but what people are acutely aware of is, is what you just said, is that if you go out there, you may not die, actually, you, you put it quite starkly. I mean, I, do, you know, I, don't, I don't go out and ride my bike and think, oh, I might die, but what you are acutely aware of is that even, even a small collision uh, affects you quite, quite a lot. So you might drive, I mean, I don't know, I, I've I drove my car, I had a small collision with my car, with another car. I mean, it's, it's a bit annoying, it costs a bit of money, but that's about it. The same kind of collision with a bicycle, you know, could have changed, I could have lost my job, it could have changed my life completely, even though I haven't died, I may not even have shown up at the statistics. And people aren't stupid, I mean, people are, are, are aware of that. And so, so, that, so safety, yes, is important, but equally important is to sort of make it feel safe. Yeah, I'm just going to say, with, with that, could you not turn that statistic on its head and say that's precisely the reason that you need to invest in cycling infrastructure, because it's that important, these people are exposed, and that's the worst point, so you need to make it better and bring it up to a better level. Well, I, I agree it provokes that question you elegantly put, but I mean, you could move on into, even in terms of the investing in the super, I mean, I, as I'm not an expert on cycling, I, I could only guess at what the biggest challenges in terms of safety are for cyclists, but I don't know, so I can't tell whether it's, you know, trying to share the road with lots of vehicles and the junctions, or whether the road surface may be an issue. And I guess, again, personally, if road surfaces are quite an issue, and they're not really discussed uh, as part of this. Um, so I, mean, so the, I think the point I'm getting at is, you know, uh, could be an argument to invest in um, making cycling more safe, but you'd have to know what the problem, the key problems were for the cyclists, and whether, frankly, that use of money <coughs> for safety in terms, you know, the way you know the way cost-benefit analysis works, whether that produces savings that are proportionate to the scale of the investment. Um, you know, we rarely do that in transport. It must be said. So mm. why not do it in? Why, you know, it wouldn't be any different. I feel as a keen cyclist, I might point out that you could well be run over between two stations and your home. So taken as a pedestrian. The time you spend as a pedestrian in that equation of tube travel may become a bit more dangerous if we take those. And you did. A bit more. So, any more questions before On that note, firstly, I want to thank Tony for lodging Croydon and Copenhagen forever twin now in my mind. <laughs> I think that's going to be life changing at some point. Just thank you very much, Gerhard. Thank you. Very fascinating talk on the uh, Super Thank you very much. Thank you.